Welcome to the No More Risk Better Accredit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets. As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection, and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Credit Sites podcast. This is Winnie Caesar, Global Head of Strategy for Credit Sites. And today I'm joined by another global head. We have our global editor-in-chief of Levfin Insights, Luke Miller, joining us today to talk all things European leveraged finance markets. Luke, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Winnie. That's uh, that's quite the introduction, I, I must say. You know, I'm very, very flattered to, to be asked. So, so thank you. Well, I always love talking about the Love Fin markets and the European Love Fin markets have been on a tear to start the year. It has been a pretty punchy start to 2024. And let's start diving into that a little bit, especially on the technical side of things. It seems that technicals are really the driving factor across credit markets right now. I think this is true of both investment grade, high yield, leveraged loans. And it seems that the demand side of the equation has really rebounded. How would you characterize the current sentiment in the Euro Levfin market? Yeah, I, I think it's right that the, the technicals have, have certainly uh, been been improving, and and I think the biggest development at the start of this year for for Europe, and I know it's mirrored to to some extent in the US as well, has been CLO formation. Uh, so you know they're the big buyers of leveraged loans, and you know the cost of CLO debt, you know the weighted average cost of capital or WAC, if we're if we're going to get really really nerdy on our acronyms, has, has clearly been coming down. It's about fifty basis points cheaper uh, to raise the CLO than it was uh, in December. And if you think about the AAAs, which is the tranche that everyone likes to talk about, they're sort of 25 tighter and around sort of 150 area. And the other big development for the CLO market, and, it, and it's only just beginning, but it's just starting, there's been a couple of deals where there's been third party equity going to the transactions. And that's, that's meaningful because last year it was only CLO managers that had captive equity that could do their own equity tranches that were issuing deals because fundamentally they weren't generating the returns that a third party would want, but the manager still wanted to be printing deals. And it just sort of shrunk the shrunk the investor base uh, a little bit. But you know, the other side has been around supply and there has still been a relative scarcity of assets, if we think versus, you know, the, the, the halcyon days of 2021 or something. And that's led to a, you know, a very strong technical bid for, for the loan market, both primary and secondary. I mean, the secondary index is up nearly a point already this year. Uh, that has softened a little bit in the last week because we finally got a sizable chunk of new money paper in primary. If I think about high yields, well, the high is back in the yield part, so you know yield talks, and this means we've had inflows to traditional accounts, ETFs, hedge funds. What you're also seeing is just a bigger allocation to high yield from, say, multi-strat funds, and it it all comes together to create a, a sort of clearer, firmer bid. 
But as we'll probably come to in a bit, what, what the markets want is new money paper and LBO and M&A activity, whilst anecdotally picking up, hasn't yet led to much supply. So on that supply side of things, we always say on the strategy team that supply follows demand. And I think that for all of the markets, and especially Euro Levfin, that has been the case. You just mentioned that there's been a little bit of softening on the loan bid price side of things because we've seen a little bit more of that net new money supply come to market over the past week. Can you talk a little bit about the new issue pipeline? You know, what types of deals are getting done in, you know, both high yield and the loan market? Yes, I mean the first sort of six weeks of the of the year, it's been you know, in the loan market. It's been nearly all repricings, refinancings, and and A and E's, and and the bond market has been close close to entirely dominated by by refinancings. And you know it makes sense. Uh, the loan market has been much more proactive in addressing maturities because they're floating rate debt. The rising rates has already fed through to funding costs. But if you think about high yield, it hasn't done yet. So all of those names that are, you know, raised three to 5% coupons in the past are now going to have to turn them into sort of seven to 10%. And that's clearly not very appealing. So companies have been waiting longer to start refinancing in the high yield market. And they're starting to come through, but that's probably been a bit slower than I had expected. I mean, we're in earnings season at the moment, that dampens supply. But I suspect the name of the game for high yield is to try and take the sting out of the increased cost in debt. So you're waiting for as long as you can. You think rate cuts are coming. So you imagine that it's going to get cheaper to issue. That's a dangerous game. It only takes an unforeseen event to, to you know, risk off and to close markets in, in Europe. But on the really positive side, in the last few weeks, in the loan market, there's been a, a clear pickup in new money offerings. I mean, I think we, we ran some numbers a couple of days ago, and we think there's about 4 billion of new money supply currently out to market in the the European loan market, and that, that's, that's a sizable chunk for, for Europe. And, you know, that's partly M&A driven, it's partly dividend driven. But what you're also seeing is if you're coming, if a company's coming to do a loan refinancing, they're quite often adding a few hundred million to the transaction for general corporate purposes or, or something like that, because they're trying to entice people into the deal uh, to make the refi more palatable. So if you offer a, a small slug of new money paper, and the buy side tends to, to lap it up. But the, the nascent, and I expect, big theme that we're going to see this year is, is loans refinancing other asset classes, and that's especially private debt. We've seen some bond-to-loan transactions already as companies want the increased exit flexibility that, that floating rate debt and loans give. But it's really about taking some share from the private credit market that I think is, is, is clearly the emerging theme and, and is going to grow later this year. It is a really interesting theme and that's emerged both in the US and in Europe. And your team has done an incredible job of, of tracking that trend of the deals going back into the BSL market from private credit. So kudos to you guys. I also wanted to circle back on the high yield issuance, especially for lower rated issuers. You know, you mentioned that there's been this bias to wait it out, right? Everyone thinks rates are going to go lower at some point. 
over the course of 2024. In fact, we were talking to some clients recently and they were telling us that the new high yield management team mantra is stay alive till 25 and then <laughs> refinance then, which, you know, it's, it's a great tagline for sure. But also, as you noted, it comes with a lot of risk, right? We've seen Euro triple C's fare pretty well year to date. Spreads are tighter there, uh, which is actually different than in the US. Defaults have taken a longer time to start to creep higher. So if if I'm a borrower with, you know, a maturity in 26, 27, I would be thinking maybe I should just try and get something done so that I'm not worried about staying alive until 25. What do you think the outlook for this lower rated high yield issuance, you know, single B minus, triple C's, what do you think the outlook is? Uh, sorry, you, you just put you just got the film Short Circuit. Johnny Live, Johnny Five is live stuck in my head now, Winnie. But that's that's me showing my age. And the first thing to note is that there hasn't been a Euro Triple C primary deal in high yield in a little over two years now. I mean, earlier this month, Aldona did a, a Triple C, but but it, it did it as part of a cross border deal, but it, it denominates it in dollars. So, but at the same time, when we think about Triple C, certainly in primary, it usually tends to be good credits issuing subordinated debt. So the the rating is about subordination, not about not about credit quality. And I think that's an important distinction to, to remember. But I mean, I was taking a look at your data earlier on in the week, and it shows, yeah, triple C excess returns to be you know double that of single Bs and way ahead of double Bs and even got real estate uh, excess returns running at over 12% versus sub 4% for the next best performer. So it's sort of impossible to deny that there's a clear appetite for more credit risk but I suspect it's still only really the triple C's that, as I say, the part of the subordinated part of the cap stack of liked strong credits, rather than single bonds from weaker credits that are going to get that bid. And you know, I was speaking with a portfolio manager just yesterday, and he reminded me that the triple the outperformance of triple C's in Europe was pretty much the same at this point last year as well. And so it's, it's looking like a little bit of a repeat. People don't want duration. Uh, they want to take on a bit more credit risk. But it only takes a small risk-off event to wipe those returns out, as again, we saw that last year. At the same time, I was also reading you know, uh, house re research from, from an investment house, and that was all about how defaults in triple Cs have been noticeably lower in the last five years than at other points in time. And, and, and they really lent into that credit quality versus structural argument that, that I raised. So, so mixed views, I suspect it you know, pays you money to make your choice. And the upside is it's an area where you can outperform as a fund manager and likewise underperform. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot in there. And I think that the point about the beginning of this year feeling oddly similar to the beginning of last year with economic data coming in better than people had anticipated, yields moving higher, central banks kind of holding the line or becoming incrementally more hawkish in their messaging. And then at some point, the Goldilocks kind of 
goes away. We have a lot of seasonal technical factors. We have an upcoming global election cycle later on in the year. And also the reality that at, at some point, these higher borrowing costs are going to show some more damage. So we've been a little bit cautious in the near term on a spread basis, really a- across most markets, because we've been astounded by how well credit has held in as sovereign yields have been rising. And we feel like something's got to give there. We're not going outright negative, but just saying, you know, perhaps valuations have come a little bit too far too fast. And then you mentioned real estate with excess returns over 12%. Real estate is one of those hot button topics for sure. There are some other sectors, things like retail, services, basics in the European markets that have all seen some pressure What are you thinking from kind of a sectoral level? Are there sectors that like real estate are performing well that people are going to just kind of hold their nose and buy? Or is this more the idiosyncratic, you know, we we need to really know what we're buying? Um, Well, I mean, just on real estate, I mean, I can't remember, even though I was looking at your data, what percentage of the index is, but it's it's not a small part of the index. And I think the other thing to remember is that there's billions of potential fallen angels. So, you know, people talk about how they don't like real estate, but if they're going to remain weighted towards the benchmark, they're going to have to likely take some view on positions in that sector at some stage. So, you know, the other thing people talk is they don't like cyclicals in general, but I'm going to fall foul of a comment I actually hate hearing from from sources when I speak to them, and and you know, it, and and that's the comment that it, it depends on the credit. You know, it's it's credit dependent, company dependent, not so much cyclical. And I think a good example of this is if you look at TMT. You know, it's generally a well liked sector, but you have some names in it that are causing concern. You know, Altis, and and that's a name on both sides of the Atlantic that's, that's widely held. Well, it's in, increasingly marked. Might and I get into trouble when I write that in, in my, from, by my copy editors. But for those not familiar, it's a, a spread put on toast in, in the UK that's renowned that people either love it or hate it. But you know, it is a Marmite credit, and there's a vent risk around names like Telecom Italia. So I, I don't want to dodge your question, but it's it's a tricky one because I don't think people look at sector as as, as, as a broad, broad brush. I think it's, you know, trying to find the opportunities within those. And at the moment, all sectors have their problem credits. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. Sector strategy is tricky in any market. But as you get into markets that are smaller, a little bit less liquid, you know, dominated by a handful of issuers, you might have your sector strategy exactly right, but just have picked the wrong credits. And then for some of these credits that are trading at elevated levels, you know, just by standing still, they can outperform pretty well. So it's it's a really delicate balance. So Luke, I'm going to ask you the, the hard-hitting question. What is your view on Marmite? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in favor. Uh, in fact, I think I even had some on my toast this morning. Wasn't it? I don't think that I've ever had Marmite. So next no. time, next time in, I'm in London, we'll have uh, some toast together. No, we'll have to. So you mentioned um, LBO activity a little bit, M&A. What's the outlook here? Are we back in action now that the markets have kind of opened up or is this more of a slow drip? 
Well, that is the million-dollar question, and it's it's one of those. If you ask bankers, they always say M and A is picking up, and if you say it for long enough, it, it sort of eventually comes true. But you know, people say it's picking up, but I would argue that you know, two crumbs might be twice as many as one crumb, but it's still a pretty insignificant number. But you know, let me let me you know uh, repeat some things that other people have been telling me that obviously because they're they're closer to the, the the action. So I had a big U.S. bank saying they had a huge inflow of sell side mandates late last year and there will be a notable pickup from April. I've got law firms telling us that they're working on on more. That's you know that's such an unspecified it's a difficult number to gauge that one, isn't it? On, on more. But it sound but but you know others sound what I fear is more realistic, which is that early stage conversations have picked up considerably, but that hasn't yet translated into actual deal making and and that was really echoed by a sponsor that I was in speaking to earlier this week and he said look it, it's clear that the number of sell side mandates have exploded uh, but it's just not clear how how many are actionable but if i'm going to try and end that one on a more positive note he did say that there is clear pressure emerging from from their lps to be doing deals and ultimately it is going to be that pressure that's going to unlock the valuation gap because it's not the state of the debt markets the debt markets are there they're priced attractively. You know, if pricing comes down a little bit, then maybe the maths allows them to put on a little bit more leverage. It then starts to close the valuation gap as well. But ultimately, it's going to come down to we LPs gave you money. It's now time for you to give us the returns. And you might not like 10x, 11x, 12x, or whatever it might be, or you know, 7x. But but we, we want our money back and we want the return. And it's only then that I think that that valuation gap is going to close in a meaningful manner. Yeah, that's a really interesting way of looking at it because I think across a lot of markets, across credit markets, even in, in investment grade, people were very biased toward defensive positioning and holding really hefty cash balances to start 2023. And while cash performed pretty well, right? If you were in the US, you know, five, five and a half percent looks pretty good on your return on cash. But then when you compare it to every other asset class, for the most part, you underperformed pretty significantly. And so I think that there is this general bias towards, okay, you know, we let you sit in cash for 12 months and now it's time to to put put the money back in action and and try to generate some better returns. I agree. So on the private credit and term loan B market topic, you know, you mentioned that we've seen deals coming out of private credit back into the broadly syndicated market. How are you thinking about this dynamic? One of the questions that comes up all the time is, you know, private credit, friend or foe. I've been in kind of the the friend camp, especially over the past couple of years, where it has provided some pretty key liquidity lifelines to companies to help manage through this elevated borrowing cost time. But now that we're seeing more competition between private credit and term loan B, is this the point where everything kind of erodes and underwriting? standards loosen up to the extent that, you know, we're actually starting to do bad deals. 
Well, I mean, I, I'm with you on, on the friend part to, to date, and I think it's worth remembering that it was private credit that stepped in and bailed banks out of what would have been some quite sizable uh, hung bridges. Not because the banks had made mistakes, it's everything turned sour, you know, in a, faster and in a way that they, you know, it'd be unfair to think they could have foreseen, but it was private credit that came in and, and bailed out those positions. Um, but no, look, private credit, broadly syndicated, it is is the talking point in the market at the moment. You know, banks are super keen to take deals out of private credit. And, you know, if we look at just simple maths, it's the leveraged loan market that's noticeably cheaper. It's E plus 45, 99 and a half area for a middle of the fairway single B versus 525, 550 at 98 for private credit. I mean, don't get me wrong, there are examples where private credit will go tighter to take deals such as Iris Software is, is the most recent one at E plus 598. But then again, the broadly syndicated market, despite the CLO arbitrage pain point being at the 400 level, will, will go sub 400 on, on, on the margin. But if you're thinking about refinancing to private credit into BSL, then, you know, simply loan market 125, 150 basis points cheaper. That's, that's a meaningful, uh, that's a meaningful saving. But there are so many other things for, for, for everyone to be thinking about. Single lender versus large number of lenders currency needs. Private credit's a bit more nimble on currency. They tend to offer a bit more leverage than the broadly syndicated market. But loan market and high yield tend to be easier to do add-on debt. It's greater risk appetite in high yield. You get cover light in the broadly syndicated market, whereas private credit often wants a covenant. Though, interestingly, I did hear one of the market's biggest private credit providers is loosening, relaxing its need for a covenant on every deal. You know, you've got other expenses, offering memorandums, marketing, ratings, they add to the expense of a public deal. Management time for doing a broadly syndicated transaction is higher. And then the last thing I'd sort of point to are just relationships. Banks provide the RCFs, even on, on, on the private credit transactions often. And so sponsors want to keep banks on side. Equally, private credit were there in tough times. So you want to keep them sweet. So I think there are just a lot of competing factors and there is no one size fits all. But the short answer to your question is there is a sizable amount of, of private credit deals rolling out of their non-call periods and they're ripe for banks to be pitching loan and bond takeout options. And the institutional market, especially in the absence of more M&A LBO, wants new money paper. And that's going to be potentially the a clear source of, of possible supply for them. That is super helpful, Luke. And I think it really highlights the virtuous cycle that you can see in the leveraged finance markets when you have an improvement in market sentiment and technicals and the demand side of the equation. Because as we see deals come out of private credit back into the BSL market, that means that private credit has more cash that they're going to ultimately have to put to work. And that is going to just kind of result in more and more companies uh, seeing access to capital and liquidity and presumably tighter pricing um, and just kind of more favorable terms is in general. So it's going to be a really interesting thing to see how it plays out over the next couple of years. And I guess on that, you know, let's talk a little bit about the valuation and default side of things. You know, you had 
talked about triple C defaults over the past five years have been lower than you know historical levels. I think this makes intuitive sense just given the tremendous boon that a lot of companies got in the back half of 2020 and 2021 with rock bottom borrowing costs and you know very solid investor demand and fundamentals coming in well ahead of expectations. This year, Euro high yield, it's on a, a pretty good tear. Spreads are almost 50 basis points tighter in 2024, trading around 350 basis points, which is definitely at the tight end of the recent range. Higher quality around 250 basis points, triple C's in distress to almost 100 basis points tighter year to date. And Euro yields have actually held kind of steady at 6.3% because we've seen that rising sovereign yield. And so people are still commanding that, that nice all-in yield. How do you think that investors are thinking about valuations? Do they care that spreads are really tight? Is that still important? Or is it just the, hey, Euro high yield north of 6% feels like a buy? <laughs> I think there's a, f- a few things in that. And, uh, and again, as opposed to my, my personal view, because what do I know? But uh, I was speaking to a portfolio manager, again, a, a different one the other day, and he was pointing to the fact that the duration of, of the high European high yield market has never been so so short. And therefore, he questioned correlations between spreads, etc. For him, it was cash price that, that was most important. And the market is a little skewed by the fact that everybody's waiting for this refinancing wave to come. So cash prices, you know, they've edged higher, they've edged higher. The maths because of the coupons means they can only go so high. Um, so you've got this sort of inertia a little bit. But the other thing I've seen has, has sort of always caught my attention in, in the last few years is that when interest rates went wider, the psyche of the market really shifted from being a spread product to outright yield. It used to be a yield market, and then it became a spread market when rates went so low because there was no yield to talk about. So everybody pivoted to speak about high yield a little bit more like they were speaking about the investment grade market. And if you take a look at new issues, you know, it's noticeable that spreads are not that much wider than a few years ago, but clearly yields are. So, But then the flip side is people start to talk about whether they're being paid enough on a spread basis. So if I were to play devil's advocate, we're a little flippant. I think the truth be told is the buy siders use whichever mes- measure they need to, they need in order to paint the picture that they should be paid more. But I think one, one thing that did catch my eye uh, recently was there seems to have been an uncoupling of, of you know, government yields and, and spreads. And if we don't, even if I don't take a look at, if I take a look at the crossover, for example, so we don't take a look at sentiment, there's been a real disconnect between the crossover and the 10-year bond. And that disconnect is the highest that it's been for over a year. Now, I'm personally not smart enough to tell you why, Winnie. I think I'll I'll, uh, I'll leave that to the wizard brains of, of you and your team. But um, I, you know, those are some of the things that we we've been thinking about um, when, when when it comes to spread versus yield. I mean, I'm not sure that I'm even smart enough to figure out the the decoupling of sovereign yields and spreads. You know, we had expected that the falling sovereign yields at the end of last year had been a little bit overdone. Rate cutting expectations had been a lot overdone. You know, we went from being the most dovish in the room last October to somehow the most hawkish in the room <laughs> by December. And now we're kind of where the market has has come back to. So 
it's no, now we're trying to figure out what our, what our next move is. And I think that one of the things that we saw in the Fed meeting minutes yesterday where the Fed was talking about the potential for economic growth to remain stronger than expected while inflation comes down at a nice pace. And that is truly the Goldilocks outcome for credit, right? I mean, especially as we have these elevated yields still. And in that environment, you know, where, where are spreads going? Are we going to 200 basis points in high yield? Because we have this lovely scenario where growth remains intact, defaults stay low, and inflation comes down. I would be surprised to see that actually materialize, but I think it is something that we have to to keep in mind. And one of the risks that we've been highlighting to clients is maybe we were not constructive enough. We were pretty constructive to start the year when we put out our 2024 outlook last October saying that spreads could tighten up, but you know maybe we should have been even more bullish, which just feels so wrong given where we are in the cycle. And I guess on that, you know, triple C's distressed. There's been serious momentum there. And it's a, a big about face from last year where triple C's in distress underperformed by a pretty significant margin. Are you surprised by what's unfolded in the lower rated spectrum to start the year? Uh, yeah, I, I, I am. Um, I mean, I, I think I, I always expected the rise in interest rates to take longer than maybe we were all expecting to feed through. The companies had more levers to pull and, and you know, it was going to take time for that, those higher interest costs, et cetera, to, to really feed through. But I think when, we, when we've been you know, talking about it on desk, it's really been the ability of companies to continue to be able to refinance or at least undergo distressed exchanges. And I, you know, you could call those soft defaults, fine, but they, but, but, but they're not necessarily outright defaults. And so, you know, companies just aren't going to the wall. There, are, there aren't the covenants to, to, to trip them up anymore. It's always about liquidity. And if the market will refinance you or give you a little bit more runway, then, you know, they're going to take it. And that's going to keep the default rate artificially low, but, but still low. You know, if you think we're thinking about it, that double B duration trade that we, I mentioned earlier, that that that's that, that feels like it's been overdone. The pull to par trade has lost a bit of juice. So credit risk is becoming that place where you can outperform and so maybe has a more solid bid on around certain names that um, that you think. And, you know, it means managers can differentiate. And you know, the, the last thing I was thinking about this was, you know, we've just gone, well, we're just in the midst of another earnings season. And certainly in Europe, it's again, probably surprised a little bit to the upside. So companies are weathering the storm better than I think we all expected a year ago. But, you know, what I would add is it's Europe. It will take one blow up and everybody will run for the hills again. Yeah, that sentiment shift can come very quickly on, you know, even sometimes not that big of a blow up. It's it's just the jitters move through the market quickly. And I just want to wrap up on the default side of things. European high yield bond market defaults were about 2.4% on an issuer weighted basis as of the end of January, which is pretty low. I don't think that people were expecting to still have a two-handle default rate for the European high yield market heading into 2023. But there's still a good chunk of the market trading at what we would say are distress levels. We have about 10% of the market 
trading at spreads of a thousand basis points or wider. And then I think even more importantly, about 25% of the market trading at spreads of 800 to 900 basis points, which feels to me like kind of the danger zone. You know, the, a, a deal may need to get done, refinancing need, might need to get done, some sort of execution may need to happen. You know, where do you think that defaults are going to head in 2024 for the Euro Leffen markets? Um, I mean, coming into the year when we were doing all of our outlook pieces at the end of last year, I think the, co- the consensus was three to four percent. And and there were some noticeable outliers within that. But I think you sort of start to hone in on, on that four percent number and the, 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 that you have as well. And I don't think there's anything that's happened yet that means you would you would materially shift that view. But I think also in support of, you know, the, the distress levels and the, the, that you were talking about, you know, anecdotally, uh, the special my special sits teams on, you know, both both sides of the Atlantic are increasingly busy. I mean, you know, the headline count coming out of them is ticking higher and higher and higher. And I'm not suggesting that, you know, the dam breaks, but if I if I had to have a sort of off benchmark measure that would seem to indicate to me that you know, defaults are going to go higher but yeah i, I still think four percent feels around about the right number to me thank you luke that was super helpful and i just wanted to highlight on the distressed exchange topic you know a distressed exchange may not ultimately be an event of default when it happens but they're historically good indicators of future defaults right you know oftentimes a distressed exchange is just something that precedes the ultimate default for a company so as those rise as our special situations team becomes more busy these are really interesting things to consider in the outlook for defaults in 2025 2026 Luke, I want to thank you so much for joining me today to talk about the Euro Levfin markets. This has been a great conversation. Thank you, Winnie. I, I must admit, I do, do enjoy a Levfin nerd out. So anytime, anytime you want. Me too. I try to talk to my kids about these things and they're just not interested. <laughs> my four-year-old wants to talk about monster trucks, not leveraged finance markets. It's very strange. Uh, you need to change that, Winnie. Just, just just find a good few examples of companies. You know, what was the, the one that does Peppa Pig uh, in Europe? So uh, that, that, that one I might show the offering memorandum to my children uh, later for some bedtime reading. I love that idea. I will work on that for sure. Nothing like an OM bedtime reading <laughs> for your children. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you all for listening to the Credit Sites podcast. If anyone has follow-up questions for me or Luke, you can find us on the creditsites.com website, which is now fully integrated with the Credit Sites, Levfin Insights, and Covenant Review products. We will talk to you next time. Credit Sites Disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates. Thank you.